<clears throat> well, I had a realization. Oh, one, one announcement, really important before I jump in. I just want to get at this. I'm ready to go. But we have thought long and hard about how to do Christmas Eve uh, services, if you would, this year. And we've come to a difficult decision, and, and that is that we're going to do uh, only uh, Christmas Eve service online. The reason that is, is because, as you know, COVID is on the rise, not so much where we are, but certainly in a lot of places which surround us. And we feel fairly certain that um, if we were to have a typical service, there would be people from red and now gray zones who would be coming home and who would probably be with us. And that would only increase the level of risk to our people and, and the people present. So we've always erred on the side of caution and been really careful about uh, what we're doing with uh, COVID procedures. And what we are now, uh, and that's led us to this decision. But what we are really intending to do is to provide an experience in your homes, which will be really meaningful for you. Um, we're just going to be translating it online. And we hope you can gather as families and certainly if you're on your own together with that one or two other people that uh, you can um, have a participatory experience in what we'll be doing that night. So we'll be giving you some instructions probably next week about how to prepare for that. And we just hope and pray it'll be a really meaningful uh, time for you as families in particular or as friends gathered together. We really didn't like taking that decision, but that's what we've come to. And again, what we're suggesting to the best of our knowledge, that's the best and safest way to proceed. So we hope you'll understand that and that you truly will be blessed as we... Uh, share that time together. Well, listen, let me jump into this. Um, I had a realization this week, and I've shared it with, it with a couple of people, and they, you know, one actually kind of laughed at me. He said, oh, you're just realizing that now, Chris. How old are you? <laughs> but, it, but the realization was this, that uh, Christmas music, which I love, I've always loved it. It's one of the things that I really look forward to at this time of the year. It's really happy. All of it. It's positive, it's encouraging, it's uplifting. You know, joy to the world. The Lord has come. We wish you a what? Merry Christmas. And on and on and on it goes. Christmas music is always happy. It's always positive. It's always upbeat. And I don't know why I didn't realize it until this week. But I didn't. And now I know. See, a lot of music is not necessarily always so upbeat. You know what a lot of country music's about? How many of you love country music? Yeah, I hate it. But that's beside the point. You know what country, it's a lot about, you know, the achy, breaky heart, you know, somebody breaking somebody's heart and then somebody being so sad because of it, and on and on and on. And of course, pop music, it's the same deal. Not, not always, of course, but it's not always happy. But Christmas music is always good. And here's the point, I suppose. Christmas is all good. Like, it really is. There is not much about this season that you look at and go, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> that's a shame. That makes me sad, because I don't think there's much there that, 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 that produces that. So I'm going to talk for a few Sundays about this really good reality of Christmas. We're going to read a cl the cl classic Christmas story in a little while, Luke 2, 1 to 14. And, you know, it's the one that we normally leave to Christmas Eve, maybe Christmas Sunday morning, which would be next Sunday. Um, but, but at the end of that passage, verse 14, is that incredible moment when Christ has been born and the angels come, the, the, the heavenly host. Do you know what host means? It means army. It would be an incredible moment to experience the, the number of angels, the sound of their voices. It would have been, try to imagine being there. 
a host of angels, the brightness of the sky, the message that was given. <laughs> Remarkable. But what they sang was this, glory to God in the highest, glory to him, in the highest places where we, angels, wouldn't consider going into that place, the throne room of God, that, that level of intimacy with God. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. You know, there, there's, this, there's this powerful message that we're called to, to glorify God, and, and, and then the peace that comes to us in Christ, in his birth. Now, I'm going to use a line and, and, and thoughts from John Piper. I want to give him credit because this is an incredible line that, 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 that comes from him. I like John Piper as, a, as an author and as a speaker and so forth. But based on this verse, this is what he said, because Jesus was born. I wish I had written this, by the way, but I got to be honest, I didn't, but I wish I had. Because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there will be a never ending stream of glory flowing from us to God and a never-ending stream of peace flowing from God to us. Do you see it? Glory to God in the highest, a never-ending stream of glory rising up from God's people to the throne room of God and, a never end, and, and, and peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests, this never-ending flow of peace coming into our lives because Jesus was born. Isn't that good? Isn't that remarkable to think about because Jesus was born? Well, I'm going to speak about the flow of glory from us to God today, and I'm going to talk next week about the flow of peace from God to us. So, first of all, what is glory, biblically speaking? Here are biblical words that are associated with the concept of glory. Think about God. Think about the glory of God. Well, here are the words, power and majesty weightiness, the significance of who God is as a person, honor, dignity, splendor, and brightness or light. That's what glory is. You know, when we recognize the power and the majesty and the weightiness and the honor and the dignity and the splendor of God, the brightness, the, the blazing light which surrounds them, we are giving glory to God. We are, we are ascribing glory to God. We're lifting it up to Him. We're communicating glory to Him in recognizing that this is indeed who he is. Now I want to tell you, my friends, what's essentially being said here. Glory to God in the highest. It's us seeing God. It's seeing what God had, God had done in that, that day in Bethlehem and ending up in awe, ending up with little left to say, but wow, this is a remarkable thing that I'm perceiving and it, and, it, and it produces, if you would, something within us, this glorifying of God that bubbles up and flows from us into the presence of the living God. Now, how do we get to glory being given to God? Can I put it that way? How do we take the focus off Christmas where God maybe plays a minimal role and get to that place in Christmas, in the celebration of it, in the thinking about it, where, we're, where we are moved to awe. Well, I'm going to invite you to listen to this passage now. Luke 2, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> verses 1 to 14. The classic Christmas story, and then we'll dig into it and see what it might tell us. Verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. 
This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, note with me, first of all, the reality of the words of the text when it says, Today, today, in the town of David, Savior has been born. At this specific moment in time, a Savior has come into this world. This was the day that God had predetermined in his eternal plan. An incredible day of God's choosing, which had been in place over time, anticipated for, planned for, for millennia. Earlier on in the text, it said the time came for the baby to be born. It's not just a matter of pregnancy. It was the time of God's choosing. Now, what about this millennia of preparation? Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When God is speaking to the serpent, the, the evil one, and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, referencing Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike at his heel. This is the first prophecy of Jesus in the Bible. It is anticipating, it is looking forward to the day when, yes, the serpent would bite at the heel of Jesus and he would harm Jesus. But Jesus, in turn, would crush his enemy. That's what happened on the cross and the resurrection. An anticipation of the plan of God. Go to Genesis chapter 12. You know, just a, just a, a time later when Abraham... Uh, Abram at this point, actually, before his name is changed to Abraham, is called by God and God says, leave, leave the place that you were in, leave your family, leave all that you know and go to a place I will show you. And then he says this, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. How would everyone on the face of the earth be blessed through Abraham? Simple. He would produce a nation called Israel. And one would come from that name, nation named Jesus, the Savior born on that day in Bethlehem. You see, God had a plan. Christ and his coming And his life and his death and his resurrection were the critical components of that millennial old plan. Think about what we talked about and finished up with last week. The whole idea of um, Daniel 
Chapter 7, four empires represented. If you will hear, you'll remember this in a dream. The fourth empire represented Rome, a time in which Daniel said, one like a son of man would come with the clouds, the divine human being, the one we now know as Jesus. He would come and he would save his people. You see, God had a plan, and at the heart of the plan was Christ. It was, if you would, put into full play by the birth of a child named Jesus. Let me take you to Genesis, sorry, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And there are other texts in Scripture. I just wish we had more time to, to, to reference them. But listen to these words written by the Apostle Paul. Verse 4, but when the set time had fully come. Hear that. When the set time, the time of God's choosing, had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. At the set time, Jesus was born. The time of God's choosing. A remarkable moment in which God was fulfilling playing out this sovereign plan which he had in mind from the beginning of time. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Now, scholars have also looked at the perfect timing, can I put it this way, of Jesus' birth when you consider the context into which he was born. Number one, think of these things. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. There was no conflict in the Roman Empire, which was the known world, if you would, at the time. And because of peace, there was this opportunity for people to travel wherever they chose to travel, carrying the message of Jesus to anyone that they would want to speak to. No inhibition. Think of the Roman roads. Do you, do, have you heard about those? I've seen them, how they were paved and how they were straight. They, we would call it today fantastic infrastructure <laughs> because the government had put money into these roads so people could travel easily to the places where the message of Jesus needed to go. Think of the common language of Jesus' day. It was Greek. Everybody understood it pretty much. Because of Alexander the Great and the previous empire, the Greek empire that had uh, been displaced by Rome, but this Greek language was still prominent and people could speak the message of Jesus with ease. Think about the fact that the Jews had scattered all over the known world and wherever they went, they set up synagogues to which the apostles could travel and had open access to this new message of Jesus, at least for a time. And the message spread. You know, it's like perfect timing to, to spread this gospel message across the world. And it's said that even the spiritual state of Israel and also the deplorable state of the declining Roman Empire, which I won't speak to, but the, the, the spiritual state of Israel prepared the people for this message. You see, people were just sick and tired of legalistic Pharisaism, this religious system, which was all about rules and regulations and judgment and condemnation and guilt. Was, is it any reason that people, you know, in various instances, 5,000 men in one instance, plus women and likely children, flocked to Jesus to hear what he had to say. Another instance, 4,000 people gathered. These are massive crowds in this day for this size of population. But these people were so ready to hear a message of love and of grace and of life and of joy, which Jesus spoke. God had prepared the way in so many ways. Eager to hear, these people were ready to receive now, I don't know about you, but you know, when you think about that line, today in the town of 
Bethlehem. Today in the city of David. God's moment. God's time. The set time. When time had come to its fullness. That causes something to rise up in me like, wow. And causes me, and I hope you also, to come to this place where you're ready to ascribe glory to God. God. For what he had done. And carrying on, today in the city of David, this city named Bethlehem, just about six miles from Jerusalem still, 750 years prior, a prophet named Micah wrote these words. Chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Ephrathah, through you, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old. From ancient times. Now, just that in itself is remarkable. Why did he write that? <laughs> How could he write that? Well, he was inspired the Spirit by the Spirit of God, as with all prophecy, to write what God wanted him to write. It was, it was an incredible reality. And it was speaking again to the sovereign plan of God, the sovereign purpose which had been established and came to fruition or completion, if you would, in the birth of Jesus. This was a really big deal to the people of Israel in the day of Jesus. You know, they really believed, because of this text, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And they, it actually kept people from believing that Jesus was the Messiah because he grew up in, who can tell me? Nazareth. He was identified with Galilee. He was identified, identified with the town of, of Nazareth and the area of Galilee. Listen to this, John Chapter uh, 7, verses 40 to 42. I can come to this quickly. It says this. On hearing his, Jesus' words, some of the people said, Surely this man is a prophet. They're inspired by what he said. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town of where David lived. Because on to say, thus some people were divided because of Jesus, and some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. You see, there was confusion because these people start thinking the Messiah is coming from Bethlehem, but he's from Nazareth, the Galilee. And people actually rejected Jesus as the Messiah because they did not know where he was born. And here's the remarkable thing to me above all of these things. How is it how is it that Jesus ended up being born in Bethlehem, considering Joseph and Mary were from Nazareth? You ever thought about that? You know, what's all-worthy about this, if I can put it that way, is how God got Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem on that specific day that Jesus might be born. You know what he did? He put it in the heart of Caesar Augustus to take a census of the entire Roman world. Think about that. And ask yourself, who is in control of this world? The mighty, powerful, glorious Caesar Augustus or the God of heaven? <laughs> Proverbs 21 says, In the Lord's hand is the king's heart. Um... The king's heart is like a stream of water that he channels. God just placed in Caesar's heart 
his desire so that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Tell me, who was in charge that day? Who was the ruler? Who was the one who was sovereign? Now I want to tell you, my friends, we see this, and we have got to stand back, and we have got to recognize this God, and we have got to recognize his majesty and his power and his glory, and we have to ascribe glory to the living God. Last item of awe that I want to, to, to bring to you today is the phrase that comes to us again in this little verse. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. Savior. Jesus, one who came to save us from the biggest problem of our lives. Now take a minute. What's the biggest problem in your life, do you think? Some of you might say, well, it's a financial problem. Some might say it's a relational problem. Um, some might say it's a personal problem with addiction or with, you know, an emotion. I mean, the list could go on and on and on, but I'm here to tell you that what the Bible says is the, that the biggest problem in your life is, is sin. That thing which is at work within us, that thing which, which only harms our lives, that thing which ultimately has separated us from God, that thing which will cause us to spend an eternity without God unless it is dealt with by a Savior. I want to tell you um, that this salvation that Jesus came to bring to solve our greatest problem was not for God's glory, but for our need. I want you to hear this. I want you to see it. I want you to realize that, that Jesus came, and he didn't come for his glory, when you think about what he had to go through in order to accomplish salvation for us, to save us. You know, a lot of people, including Philippians chapter 2, talk about the humility of, humility of Jesus. Jesus leaving the glory, the power, the majesty, the splendor, <laughs> the weightiness, the recognition of heaven to become a human being. You know, this in itself tells us much about Jesus and about why he came, because he came not just in humility, but toward humiliation. Have you ever thought about this? Well, what did it mean for Jesus to come to this earth as an infant child? What did it mean for Jesus to become a human being? We kind of think, well, we human beings, are, we're pretty good stuff. But you know, when you compare us to the glorious, majestic, splendorous, and all-powerful God, we're just, we're in a different category. I've often thought, how, what's the analogy? How could I describe what it would be like for us to take the kind of step that Jesus took down? And I've never really been able to come up with something that I think is adequate, but it would be something like us, you know, Jesus becoming human is very similar to us becoming something like a worm. I hope that makes a point to you. And well, we're going, oh, I don't want to become a worm. <laughs> that's a big step down, Chris. Well, that's the point. And Jesus became something that was so much less in essence than what he had been in terms of what he knew and the glory of heaven. You see, the eternal Son of God giving up majesty, glory, power in order to become like us. I want to tell you this too. He was born in the human fashion. And when he was born, he was laid in a feeding trough for animals. 
cows or goats or sheep or whatever it might have been. I don't know, I'm not really familiar with that part of the world, but I can't imagine that those animals, when they're eating, don't slobber into a manger. And he was born into poverty. You know that, don't you? He's young. This young couple had nothing. Think of it, poverty. Not enough food, not enough clothing, not enough shelter, etc. He was soon to become a refugee. Think about it as he and his family fled Israel because of King Herod who sought to kill all the boys under two years old in that part of the world to protect his power. And he, he fled to Egypt and he lived like a refugee at least for a time. Again, no home, no family, probably not enough food and clothing and so forth. He was at the, probably at the mercy of others. This is God I'm speaking of. The majestic, all-powerful, splendorous son of God. And ultimately, he grew up to be rejected by his own people and then to die a brutal death on a cross. Physically brutal, but that physical brutality paled in insignificance compared to the spiritual suffering and death. If you would, he would die when his father turned his back on him and he cried out, Father, why have you forsaken me? For all eternity, this had never happened. But it happened on the cross. As Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree, Scripture says. What does that mean? What it means is that he suffered our hell within a few hours. Think of it. He suffered the hell of the whole world within a few hours. But I want to tell you directly, and with grace today, he suffered your hell so that you would be free of it in just a few short hours. We have no idea what Jesus did for us. And he did so not for his own glory per se, but because we needed desperately a Savior. Are you beginning to ascribe glory to God? Entering into the wow state of amazement about what Jesus has done for you? Here's really, ultimately, I think, in this regard, what's most awe-inspiring. It's why Jesus gave up glory and why he humbled himself to experience humiliation of death on the cross. It comes to us in this incredibly well-known and beautiful verse. John 3.16 for God so loved the world. God the Father had a plan and a purpose, and he sent Jesus on that day. God the Son, who was one with the Father, embraced that task that he was given, and he came willingly out of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal You know what's awe-inspiring about this Savior coming and being born? What's awe-inspiring is that Jesus did this because he loved you. You see, in his coming, in his death, and in his resurrection, that's the extent that Jesus was willing to go in order to save you 
and to draw you into a relationship with him. To give you this blessing of faith, to give you this incredible, undeserved relationship with the living God. That we might know and enjoy forever in heaven. My friends, listen to me. That love is stunning. It is awe-inspiring. It is all we need to glorify, give majesty and power and weightiness and splendor and honor and dignity to the living God. And I want to say this. If you have ever done anything wrong, anything, you need a savior. Doesn't matter how good a life you live, that's not really what salvation's about. Can't accomplish it on our own. Nobody can rise to the level of God's standard, which is perfection, obedience completely to the law. Only Jesus could. He's done it. And then he went to the cross so that he could suffer our penalty. That we might be forgiven. That we might be drawn into this relationship with God for all time. My friends, if you have ever sinned, if you have ever done anything wrong, you need a Savior. But I want to tell you, he has come on that day in Bethlehem to save you. And all we need to do is respond by faith. Literally, that's it. To believe in this one named Jesus. To trust in him. Have a faith that will take us to a place of repentance and confession. Have a, a faith that takes us to that place where we, where we are willing to receive him into our lives so that he becomes our living Lord. We follow after him by faith. We enter into that relationship that God loved us so much that he wanted to create. Listen, my friends, if you need that relationship, can I invite you to believe in him? To invite, to, to invite you to come to that place of repentance, confession, and to receiving Jesus into your life? That's why he came. He loves you that much. Listen, we have to stand in the awe of in awe of what God did for us in Jesus. We have to. And if we will do this, my friends, if we will stand in awe, if we will wrap our minds around the incredible nature of God and the incredible thing that He has done in the birth of Jesus, there will be an everlasting flow of glory from us. You and me, us, <laughs> to God. We're called to it for the rest of our lives. To dwell in this knowledge and to give glory to God. The incredible thing, next week we'll talk about it. After that happens, peace starts to flow the other direction. And that is so cool as well because God loves you and me. Listen, as you encounter Christmas, awfully close now, week Friday, as you sing the carols, as you read the text, 
But as you sing the carols, will you ascribe glory to God? Will you give it to him? Will you say, Lord God, I think you're the most amazing God. In you I recognize power and glory and splendor and majesty and honor. It's all yours. You deserve it all. Will you worship him? I'm going to finish by reading an incredible carol. Just two verses from it. Uh, One called, O Holy Night. Listen to this. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night, (laughs) the night of our Savior's birth. Long lay the world in, in sin and error pining. Sin hurts us, doesn't it? Always. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Why does the soul feel its worth when we recognize the birth of Jesus for us? Because in that place we recognize the love of God for us. And all of a sudden we are given incredible worth. Something we've always had from God, but all of a sudden now we begin to see it. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees and hear the angels' voices, O night divine, O night when Christ was born, O night divine. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. Now, since this song was written, the, the chains of slavery has been, have been broken, at least in North America and in, in, in the West. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Do you know someday that will happen? When the Son of Man comes in glory, all oppression will cease. It will be no more. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever. His power and glory evermore proclaim. O night divine. O night. O night divine. See, my friends, it is for us to see it to understand what God has done and through it understand who he is that we might ascribe glory to him. Let's pray. Gracious God, we stand, we sit in your presence and we recognize today your magnificence, your majesty, your power, your splendor, your weightiness. And in doing so, our God, we send to you this flow of glory. We ascribe to you glory because you are worthy of it. And God, we pray that through this season, as we sing the songs, as we read the text, as we hear sermons preached as we sit one-on-one with you in our homes lord enable us to glorify you remind us of these truths and let us stand back in awe and in reverence recognizing you for who you are lord for all you have done for us in christ coming into this world today we thank you and today we worship you for you are a god who deserves 
glory. This we pray in Jesus' name.